This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 17, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. The so-called card check legislation may make it easier for workers to unionize, but it also would mean destroying the price structures of stores like Target and Walmart. It would also throw another wrench into labor relations in the U.S. So says Richard Epstein, a law professor at the University of Chicago and Cato Institute adjunct scholar. His new article on the Employee Free Choice Act is in the forthcoming issue of Regulation magazine. The basic understanding of labor law before the 1935 passage of the Wagner Act is it was governed almost exclusively by common law principles. And the key ones were these. First, it was freedom of contract between employer and employees to set whatever terms and conditions they wanted. And this tended to lead to optimal contracts in the sense that People would try to figure out how to first maximize production and then divide the profits. And if a monopolist was doing too well on the manufacturing side, new entry would bid the wages up again. Uh, there was an antitrust constraint so that workers could not harmonize in order to restrict output on their side, and employers could not harmonize or cooperate in order to create cartels on their side. Oddly enough, it was probably easier for labor to do this than management because they were generally willing to use force in a way that management would not, at least under those circumstances. So you had a number of situations where pickets were designed to restrict entry and so forth. And the third key piece to this was uh, an action for inducement to breach of contract, which any employer could bring against any union who tried to have secret organization of workers while on the job. This was the so-called yellow dog contract, a term given to it by its opponents. And in effect, what that contract did is it meant that you had to make a hard choice, either be loyal to your employer or be loyal to your union. And it disrupted the possibilities of having sudden strikes. And these three elements, in a sense, led to a fairly substantial amount of economic growth during this period. But there was, of course, a huge amount of outside agitation, not by parties to the contracts, but by labor organizations that essentially wanted to redefine the industry along monopolistic terms. Uh, so that's essentially the way it was prior to 1935. Very brief, but basically accurate. What did the Wagner Act uh, do? Well, the Wagner Act was the first of two major labor statutes, the second being the Taft-Hartley Act, which was a modest corrective that was passed just after the Second World War. And what it did is it gave labor everything it wanted in terms of its ability to organize with monopoly power. Uh, the first thing that it did, in effect, is that it said that a union, if it won an election, could in fact be the exclusive bargaining representatives for all the workers inside the unit. That unit, of course, had to be administratively determined, which required the services of the National Labor Relations Board. But once you had the election, the employer could not talk directly to individual workers, could not honor contracts that had been entered into prior to the negotiations with the union. There was one employer who had to negotiate with one union. And under those circumstances, the dominant weapons of industrial organization became strikes by workers if they couldn't get the collective bargaining agreement they want, or lockouts by employers if they happened to think that the terms the labor was asking for were essentially, un were essentially unsustainable. Uh, the reason this creates immense administrative confusion is that you now have all the problems of collective choice. You have first to deal with the union campaign, which will be bitterly opposed by all employers. No union has ever come along, to my knowledge, which in a coercive situation has made an employer richer off than he would have been if the, the union had just disappeared. So you have the contentious um, campaign leading up to a secret ballot, and then you have the very contentious negotiations that take place. 
Uh, it's even worse than one might think because labor unions are not efficient monopolists. They have to find out ways to satisfy all their members, which leads them to engage under certain circumstances in the use of, way of work rules that no efficient monopolist would want to have. Uh, so you get a high degree of industrial agitation and some degree of industrial strife. And the only thing that calmed it down towards the end of the period was the ability of firms to import labor from far distances, manufacturing goods in a global market, and so forth. So that even with the statutory advantages, the amount of gains that you could get as a union from an employer were reduced as the world became more competitive, which meant that the demand for unionization amongst workers declined, which explains essentially why it is that unions have sunk from about 35% of the economy in 1955 to about 8% of the private sector today. Under the Wagner Act, there were some losses of individual association rights but they were provided for by giving workers the secret ballot. Was that part of the trade-off uh, the there? The secret ballot was essentially a way of deciding whether or not you wanted to have or not to have a union. In 1935, the Wagner Act was organized under the assumptions that having unions was good for workers and good for management. The conflict of interest amongst workers was minimized. By 1947, they changed the charter provisions under Section 7A of the Act so that workers could not only vote to have unions but to refrain from having unions, so it took a somewhat more neutral stance. But the basic mechanism of collective bargaining was retained, and a return to the common law era was rejected. And the Employee Free Choice Act does what? Oh, this is a statute which revolutionizes both stages of the process, in addition to creating much more difficulties for an employer in those circumstances where there is an organizing campaign. The first of the major provisions is the so-called car check. The unions will tell you that the free that the closed secret ballot election is still available, and so it is, so long as the union decides that it doesn't, that it wants it. But essentially, any worker can call for a card check, and the union could represent the worker in making that demand. So this is all at union options, and they will always choose card checks. The card check essentially allows you to go around under all to all places, get enough workers in a given bargaining unit to sign cards indicating that the employer. Um, that the union will represent these workers as against the employer. Uh, the union keeps the cards. It doesn't have to return them, even if the workers change their minds. At least that's the way it appears under the statute and under current practices. And once you assemble enough of these cards, you go to the National Labor Relations Act and say, hey, we've got the cards. We're the union representative now, and the employer has to bargain with us. The only defense that the employer could have is to try to recount the number of workers in the unit or to argue that some of the cards are forgeries. It would be almost impossible under current law to say that misrepresentation or intimidation was one of the reasons why the unions got these cards. So you can predict that with the cost of organization going down, unions will try to organize more aggressively. A second provision that is clearly involved with this is if an employer starts to try to mount some protests against this, uh, the current statute provides that there be an increase in sanctions for unfair labor practices exclusively against employers, treble damages for back pay instead of single damages, and $20,000 fines for each offense. And the whole point of this is to silence the employer at the same time that the union is using the card check. Um, it clearly does change the tables very dramatically. What makes it even worse, of course, is the next stage, which is once you get a union, it's no longer getting the right to bargain with an employer who can take a strike if it wants. Now at the end of a 120-day periods after the onset of negotiations, compulsory arbitration is introduced on matters of interest. So if the typical labor contract takes hundreds of pages to draft, 
some set of arbitrators are going to determine every provision in those contracts. Who, we don't know, because the statute says it will be an arbitral board, but it doesn't tell us how it will be constituted. It only says that the head of the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service, who will be an Obama pro-union employee, will determine this. And then these panels go off, and they do whatever they want, and there's no judicial review by way of an appeal to check the ways in which this happens. Uh, the prediction that I would have is that uh, these arbitrators would all get together. They would receive instructions in many ways from the mediation service, and they would create a kind of private Davis-Bacon type situation where they would sort of have very high monopoly union wages for everybody in the non-union sector. Companies like Target or Walmart and so forth could not keep their current price structures if they had this stuff in place, and it would be a major transformation of the American labor force, all for the worse as far as I'm concerned, because it would mean that the monopoly model of of the labor statutes that was introduced uh, under the Wagner Act would now become government policy to the extent that a card check could allow a union essentially to contain partial ownership rights over the management and prerogatives of the firm. A worse piece of legislation I cannot imagine with respect to this field. Richard Epstein is a professor of law at the University of Chicago and a Cato Institute adjunct scholar. His new article on the Employee Free Choice Act is in the forthcoming issue of Regulation Magazine, available at Cato.org.